Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and right now, mid-2022, is the time to talk about Bitcoin because it's when nobody else is really talking about Bitcoin because it's not skyrocketing, it's not plummeting, it's just there. And I actually have a Facebook friend of mine who, over the past few years, I have noticed is really eloquent about Bitcoin and he's into it and he knows a lot about it and I want to have a conversation when no one else is. Ben, Lewis, thank you for joining me. Yeah, thanks. No, I'm excited to talk about Bitcoin today. So... We've done a handful of episodes on Bitcoin, and it's no secret to most of our audience that we're pretty big fans of Bitcoin and crypto in general, although we may not be as enthusiastic as some people are. It might just be, you know, fear of like it maybe not working out, or maybe it's there's a little bit of uncertainty there because it's definitely a brand new thing in in our society, relatively speaking, in terms of, you know, the life of even digital age, it's still pretty new. So we're gonna start with what is your explanation of what Bitcoin is? I'm sure you come across a lot of people who are like, you're into Bitcoin? Or, well, what is it? Do you understand it? How can I explain it? I don't know if you've seen that meme about like, somebody says, it was on Twitter, I think, something like, I don't understand Bitcoin. It's like, imagine if you like left your car running and it would solve Sudoku's so that you could buy crack or something. It was just like some like everything oh, yeah. like not even connected. And yeah. it's just like, nobody understands Bitcoin. So what is your way of explaining it? We'll start yeah, with that. I guess usually, yeah, it's a digital currency. And for me, kind of like as a starting point, the two key reasons why I think Bitcoin is important and valuable and unique is that it's decentralized and it has a fixed supply. And so... The reasons why that's important is with it being decentralized, and we can talk more about this in this episode because I think it's really important and it's pretty complex, is no one controls it. And with other currencies, including fiat currencies, which we'll probably talk about in this episode too, those are controlled by a small number of people that can change it in ways that benefit them or their interests. And so when it's decentralized with no leader, then you just have to trust the code the security of the network, and it's ruled by the rules of the code, not by the rulers, which is something that planet Earth humans have never had before. And then with its fixed supply, that's pretty interesting, you know, especially that's actually kind of why I, one of the things that drew me to Bitcoin was as I was kind of studying the history of inflation of the US dollar and the history of it losing value and then realizing that compared to other fiat currencies, the dollar wasn't even so bad as most other fiat currencies. And a big reason is because a lot of governments, when they need more money, they just print more dollars. When they go too far into debt, they just debase the currency by printing more dollars or whatever their currency is. And so with Bitcoin, with this having a fixed supply, you don't have to worry about that sort of inflation and debasement in the future because it can't be debased like that. So mm-hmm. I think those are kind of the two unique features of Bitcoin that make it unique and worthwhile for people to at least learn more about. So I think a lot of people don't feel like they can trust the code, as you said. 
that's an interesting way to kind of put it. It's like trust the code because it's, I mean, you can say it's rock solid or, you know, to be kind of fun with words, it's good as gold, right? But a lot of times people think of, oh, wait a second, somebody programmed it. And doesn't that mean that the code can be either hacked or that it can be manipulated or, you know, because it is, I think, available to everybody, it could be sort of, you know, take it in a different direction. What are some of the concerns that people have along those lines? I mean, part of it could just be misunderstanding of the technology, but it does seem like it's hard to trust something that you don't quite understand what's actually going on back there, especially since you can't touch it. Right. Yeah. So yeah, that is, you know, common pushback. Yeah. Like a lot of people prefer, you know, that's kind of something nice about gold is like, I can trust it. It's right here. And it's in my local personal possession. And, you know, I don't have to trust anyone to hold this gold, you know. So I guess, yeah, it is hard. So I do tend to geek out with new technology, but I don't have like a computer science background. I know enough about the basics of code to sometimes like tweak code of like basic software programs I developed to kind of like change a couple of things. But I'm not able to like read source code and understand all of it. So it is kind of hard for probably most people who don't know how to read code, that it's not even just that you're trusting the code, you're trusting other people who can read the code for you. But, you know, I think that's something, you know, over the past couple decades, there's been kind of a movement even beyond Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies to like open source software or FOSS, F-O-S-S, free and open source software. And basically the benefits of free and open source software is, yeah, you don't have to trust the source code, instead, you can verify. And so even in this case where I personally am not able to verify, it's still the fact that, you know, the code has been scrutinized by tens of thousands, or in the case of like Bitcoin Core, millions of programmers, then, and they haven't been able to find any like zero day exploits or ways to hack it, then that is a big security boost. So I remember for me, when I was First learning about Bitcoin, I think maybe I had only bought like, you know, 10 or 20 bucks worth of it. And then like I was, you know, watching it trade, you know, up and down, you know, a little bit throughout the day and trying to figure out like, why is this so, why is this so dynamic and volatile? And, you know, what is special about this? Yeah, that, right. You know, and so I read this article by, I think it was in Business Insider about this like renowned security expert named Kamensky who... He was like, you know, kind of one of the leading experts for like security and like, so, you know, big corporations and governments would pay him to try to hack their networks to figure out how secure it was. And he would almost always find multiple exploits in it. And so early on, he heard about Bitcoin and, you know, spent several years trying to hack it. And I think for two years, he couldn't. And so then he wrote this article in Business Insider about it. So for me, that like that was like a big boost in my confidence that, okay, this is like maybe the, one of the best guys in the world to try to hack this distributed decentralized network without anyone, you know, operating it and controlling it. And if he can't crack it, then that boosts my confidence. So that, I think that for me, mm. like, yeah, that was one of the key things that helped me be able to trust it more and start buying yeah. more. And It's sort of and, like Edward yeah. Snowden endorsing a end-to-end encryption texting app or something. It's like, oh, yeah. well, if he endorses it, you know, or yeah. uses it, then... Yeah, so you, know, you, you can, can kind of, yeah, outsource your capabilities to verify for yourself to experts like that yeah. that can verify, yeah, so. Yeah, for sure. 
So you actually already talked a little bit about what is fiat. And I think a lot of times, a lot of Christians really don't understand the nature of money and the importance of sound money. And actually, I should probably say, we should probably talk a little bit about the nature of money and Bitcoin in, in and of itself. Because if I buy Bitcoin, if I convert my dollars to Bitcoin, I guess we should say, I'm not really able to do much with it except convert it back. And it doesn't feel like money to a lot of people. Right. Maybe I'm mistaken in how I'm wording all that. But a lot of people are kind of like, you know, let's say you convince your neighbor to buy Bitcoin, right? And he's like, all right, I'm going to convert my fiat dollars to Bitcoin. All right. So now I have this thing on my computer screen or my my phone screen that tells me that it's worth, say, $1,000 today. And then tomorrow it's worth $900. And the next day it's worth $1,500. And the next day it's worth $950. And, you know, you can kind of do that. It's like... What am I doing? This feels like investing, right? It feels like I just put my money into like Apple stock yeah. or something and it's yeah. just more volatile and I already knew that going in and so forth. But like, how does it at some point feel or why does it get that comparison to money? Because, you know, I don't think of stocks in companies as money per se. Although I guess since it can be traded, we could sort of call it that. But when does it become money? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the traditional sense. No, that's a great question. Yeah, so... Basically, it's hard to answer for sure because monetization has happened very few times in history of a new asset. And so, you know, like it's hard to go back in human history and find many written records for what it was like as gold was being monetized socially, you know? So kind of one potential path is that it, like first it starts out as a collectible, then eventually as like store of value as its scarcity is proved and other people begin to value it. And then later it becomes like medium of exchange and unit of account. So those are kind of like three of the main like uses of money. So like store of value, medium of exchange and unit of account. So store of value just means you can save with it. So like, you know, it's kind of like one of the things with dollars, like if I'm saving up to buy a car, you know, maybe I don't have enough this month, but if I save, you know, $500 a month for 12 months, then I'll have enough for a car, you know? Mm -hmm. So you need to be able to trust that the money is going to hold value over time. And then medium of exchange means that I can exchange those for that car or for food, or I can exchange my labor to get that money. So being able to actually exchange it. And then unit of account. So, you know, and this is like one of the interesting things that I've been thinking about more recently is like how ingrained dollars are into my way of thinking about value of everything, you know? So like, right. you know, when you hear someone talk about the value of something in a foreign currency that you're not familiar with, it doesn't have any emotional weight. But when you say someone say, $20,000 or just a dollar, you know, like that has emotional weight to it, you know? Yeah, so, right. Yeah. So money has become the way we value things as humans in our society. So right now the dollar is king, not just in the US, but even globally. And so that's, you know, something we could talk more about today too, I think. But yeah, I think one of the other things that's been really interesting too, is thinking about not just those three use cases, of money that money has to serve, but also like the properties and characteristics of money. So other people have written some interesting articles about this. So like one famous one that kind of like was early on in the Bitcoin days is 
shelling out by Nick Zabo. So he was one of the early cypherpunks that was involved with Bitcoin in the early days. And that's one of my favorite articles about this, talking about even how humans have used shells and glass beads and rocks for money. And you begin to see that not everything serves as money in an equal way. And over time, gold always won out as the best money because usually there is some sort of arbitrage. So like in in Africa, they use glass beads, which worked for a while because they were portable. You could easily wear them around your neck. So if you were a nomad, you could still easily transport your wealth and easily, you know, trade, you know, this many cattle for this many beads and stuff. But then when Europeans came and they had superior glass making technology, they were able to easily make all these glass beads and buy all their cattle and buy all their land and even buy slaves. And so then that was like an example of an arbitrage. There's been similar things with wampum and furs. And yeah, so anyways, oh yeah, over time, gold basically won out because of its properties. So it was the scarcest money, which, you know, it was really hard to make, but it was very portable. It was very verifiable. It was easily to see, okay, this is real gold. It was divisible. It was durable. So you didn't have to worry about it rusting or deteriorating away. You could save it for a long time. And then it was fungible. You know, one gold bar is pretty close to equal to another gold bar. And so, you know, this is one of the interesting things with Bitcoin is Bitcoin also has all of those characteristics too, except it kind of, for the most part, perfects all of them. So Bitcoin is much more easily divisible than gold. You know, you can melt down a gold bar, make small gold coins with it and stuff, but that's costly and time expensive and not everyone has the luxury to be able to do that well. Gold is portable. You know, you can easily stick it in your bag and carry it. And, you know, you, you know one bar of gold is a lot. But Bitcoin, I have sent Bitcoin to people around the globe within seconds, you know, so Bitcoin is more portable than that. And then there's even like, there's a cool story in Reuters of some women in Afghanistan that saved in Bitcoin, and they memorized their seed words for their Bitcoin wallet. And then when they got to Europe as refugees, they were able to access that Bitcoin again from the blockchain. From That's their seed so word. amazing to hear. Yeah. And so it's like more portable in some ways than gold. If they would have had gold or dollars with them, it would have been taken at some point in their journey to Europe. So, Shoot, man, I don't think I can fly from Pennsylvania to California and get on a plane with a bar of gold. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Let alone outside the country. (laughs) Right. And then, yeah, verifiable. There are a lot of, you know, apps or you just use, you know, the Bitcoin Core wallet to verify if it's a real Bitcoin transaction or not. You know, the cryptography works really well to verify, you know, that. And then, yeah, it's fungible. So it's kind of interesting because this was actually one of the reasons that I at first didn't trust Bitcoin was, you know, I hadn't thought through the scarcity thing. But in my head, I just thought like, okay, a digital internet currency, like, you know, pirated movies are duplicated infinitely. Pirated music is duplicated infinitely. A digital picture is duplicated infinitely. So in my head, I was just thinking like, okay, Bitcoin is just going to be duplicated infinitely. Like, why would that hold value? That was kind of like one of my misconceptions about Bitcoin before I got into it. But this was like one of the brilliant things that Satoshi Nakamoto, whoever he or they are, he figured out how to 
design digital scarcity for the first time. And so, you know, there's going to be a hard cap of 21 million Bitcoin. And that is going to be the maximum amount that we'll ever have. So whereas with gold, gold does have significant scarcity. But for one, we don't even know for sure how much gold is in the world. But people estimate that it's about 2% inflation per year. So it's still the total supply of gold being mined around the world is that. And then who knows, maybe we'll find gold, you know, down in the ocean or up on an asteroid that will cause that to inflate even faster. So, yeah. Isn't that like the targeted inflation rate that the Fed aims for? Isn't that funny? Yeah. (laughs) Huh. Gee, I wonder where they got... (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's not like they're actually doing a good job of it, especially right now. But yeah. So I really like what you said about how you see the world through the dollar as like, this is how you choose what to value. And I think that's really important for Christians to sort of recognize. Like, I don't think that we take note of the things that we value and the lenses through which we sort of make those valuations, right? So when people are making moral decisions, you know, they calculate things in certain ways, but money really does influence that. And I mean, you know, it comes to mind, you know, the love of money is root of all kinds of evil. And if you have people in a society who are influenced by, let's say, either the Federal Reserve or just, you know, it could be consumerism, all kinds of things, it's going to influence their moral choices. And it's also going to influence how they live. It's going to influence how they save. It's going to influence the way they think about consumption. You know, the fiat standard that we have is encouraging of overconsumption. Why would I like, you know, I'll go to Costco today and I'll be like, okay, so chicken costs this much and I have a freezer. I realize that has costs associated with it, but I'm already running it. I could buy a whole lot of chicken now because I know that when I come back in a month for this chicken, not the Costco chicken that everybody thinks of like frozen or like the roasted chicken, those are uh-huh. always going to be the yep. same price. My but family gets I'm those talking, too, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm talking about the like, the chicken tenderloins or whatever, but like, whatever it is, for, it yeah. doesn't matter. Whatever yeah. it is, you go to Costco and you're like, okay, the price is $100, the price is $26, the price is whatever it is. And you're like, when I come back here in two months, it's going to be higher. Why wouldn't I just buy more now if I can sort of make that choice? And so it encourages certain things. So what you say there about the dollar influences how we value it, it leads to this thought or this sort of unthinking mindset in Christians, in humans, they're like, oh, I'm just thinking, I'm just acting, I'm just calculating, I'm being good steward of my money, I'm being, you know, they're just doing all these things. But it really does have a cost to how we live and to how we set an example. So I want to kind of lead that to like, this seems to be important to Christian morality, to Christian ethics. And I just want to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I agree. I think I kind of have gone through like some different views on fiat currencies. So yeah, I think for a while, I, after learning about the ways that it's used to kind of manipulate a lot of different markets, and then also learning about the way it's used to impact other countries around the world in a lot of negative ways, it's, I don't know, it's very frustrating. So I mean, just like one example is like, the petrodollar is one of the aspects of what helps the dollar maintain its value, even in spite of, you know, rampant inflation. And so, you know, this kind of goes back to like, after the Bretton Woods Agreement, I think that was in 1944, 
the U.S. made like a pact with a lot of the European nations and some other nations that basically the U.S. would kind of hold a lot of the gold, then they would base the dollar off of gold, and then other countries would base their currencies off the dollar. But then, of course, the U.S. printed dollars well beyond that. And so one of the other things that they did, though, was they began to make deals with First, it was like Saudi Arabia in 1945 with King Abdulaziz and then other nations too, where they would sell barrels of oil denominated in dollars. And so the result of this is that the U.S. can print dollars to buy oil, whereas other countries have to basically work to buy dollars, which they can then use to buy oil. And Mm. so, yeah, I don't know. It's tricky and you know, it ends up like pushing the cost to people, I think, that are already kind of on the margins. And but then it ends up boosting like the assets of the rich and wealthy already. So, yeah. Why do you think a Christian should care about the way money relates to our Christian life and following Christ? And how does Bitcoin kind of tie into that? Or can it tie into that? Maybe it doesn't at all. And I'm leading the question. Yep. Great question. I think it does. So that's, yeah, my, honestly, my Christian faith is connected to kind of my passion for Bitcoin. So I, I did jot down just a couple of verses here that are kind of related to that. So, you know, so it's interesting kind of throughout the Old Testament, this is a common theme, but so one verse in Leviticus nineteen thirty six. So, it, you know, God says, you shall have just balances just weights, a just effa, and a just him. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Or in, in a different translation, it says, use honest scales and honest weights. And so, you know, as they would go to the marketplace, they would kind of have, you know, the scales that they would weigh for the goods that they were selling. And yeah, so it was a, a really big deal not to cheat your customers in the marketplace because it's essentially like stealing from them. And, you know, so in Proverbs 11.1, it says, the Lord detests dishonest scales, but accurate weights find favor with him. And so I think this kind of just shows like God wants us to be honest, you know, in the marketplace. But then it's interesting because in a lot of ways, like the dollar or whatever the currency is that we're primarily using, that's kind of like the scales in the marketplace. And so it's kind of interesting, though, because it's like as the Fed is injecting all this extra liquidity into the market. It's shifting the purchasing power and the selling power of like all of these different assets in weird, disproportionate ways. And so I just remember thinking like, so I, you know, during the COVID stimmy checks that we got, like, you know, so I have four kids. And so I was, we were getting like all this money just like suddenly appear in our bank account, which, you know, is cool on a personal level. But then as you're just thinking about this happening, it's like, in the past month, I've received enough to buy a car, like I could buy a a decent car. You're like, why does something something so bad feel so good, right? Yeah. (laughs) yeah. And so then, of course, since then, as that money has moved throughout the economy, we've seen how it's caused rampant inflation, you know, it doesn't happen immediately, it takes time for the economy to absorb all of that. And I just remember thinking like one time, like it was like I could work for two weeks to get this much money or the Fed can just print this much money. And, you know, just out of thin air, it's just like, you know, some digits Mm -hmm. in their SQL database that 
they maintain on their servers. You know, <laughs> like it's just it's just a couple clicks of a button, and then all of a sudden, the same amount of me working for two weeks just appears in my bank account. And so, anyways, it's like obviously those two scenarios cannot be equally valued. You know, it's not like my two weeks of labor is worth the same as those keystrokes. Yeah. So anyways, I think one of the other results that I saw play out is, so for a lot of lower income Americans, for them, their greatest asset is really their job, even though it might not be that high paying of a job, like that's their source of income. And they don't really have many like assets, like some lower income Americans own a house, most don't. Most don't own many stocks. Most don't own real estate. And so for most of them, it's like their job is their main asset, really. And yet, it's not like they saw their income increase that dramatically during the past few years, but they did see their living expenses increase dramatically. So they didn't see their main asset increase, but they did see their cost of living. Whereas for the wealthy, their wealth is primarily in, you know, bonds, equities, real estates, maybe precious metals, and maybe Bitcoin. (laughs) But for them, they saw their assets skyrocket in value over the past couple of years. Granted, you know, the market's down right now. But so even if their income didn't increase, you know, their income is not as big of a portion of their portfolio as their other assets that they own. And so that's when I kind of realized too, like, okay, this inflation, it actually is even expediating the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that was, you know, one other aspect of it. But then if you look outside the U.S. and you look at some of these smaller nations that their currencies have no demand outside their borders and maybe they have corruption or other issues going on domestically. So places like Lebanon and Turkey and Argentina they've been having double digit inflation for several years in a row. So for them, it's even much worse than it is for like lower income Americans, you know? And so as a Christian, like, you know, seeing that sort of play out in that way, for me, it makes me think of the like playing with the scales and the weights in the marketplace is kind of like the simpler analog version of what we see playing out digitally on a global scale. So... For people that are kind of interested in this topic, there's a good book I'd recommend called Thank God for Bitcoin. And, you know, it, it was helpful for me when I read it. Yeah, we've had we've had Jimmy on the podcast. Oh, neat. Yeah, Jimmy's song is great. Yeah, yeah, I've learned a lot from him and I've really enjoyed, yeah, Jordan Bush and Robert Breedlove are two of the other authors of that book that I, I really enjoy their content. I follow them. So yeah, Jimmy is much more technical than me. But yeah, Jimmy's really good too about, I think, making the ethical arguments for... Bitcoin, especially in the face of fiat currencies. Like like I've, you know, really looked up to him with that. But yeah, in that book, I think people will enjoy that book. It's definitely a great intro to Bitcoin and even intro to money and from a biblical perspective. But yeah, one of the one of the chapters in that book, they kind of just walk through the history of fiat currencies. And so they touch on like with the Roman Empire, they began to use, you know, silver coins for you know, kind of smaller purchases and then gold coins for bigger purchases and gold bars for really big purchases. And, you know, it became kind of regulated and, you know, with the emperor's stamp on it. And But then basically, in order to continue to fund their wars and empire expansion, they began clipping the coins. And so it didn't 
have an effect at first. And so they began continuing to do it. And then basically after a while, it debased the value of their currencies. So all of a sudden their economy went out of whack and then it then they ended up having to debase their coins even more to pay off the debt that they had taken on, thinking mm-hmm. that this kind of scam would continue to work. And so, you know, it kind of a similar thing played out with the dollar where, you know, we kind of do the Bretton Woods agreement. We, get, we agree everyone's going to use our currency. Our currency is going to be based off of gold. But then we print way more dollars than what we have gold for. So then we had like bad stagflation. And so countries began to redeem their dollars for gold, like from abroad. And, you know, before they got all, all the gold back, like Nixon said he was going to temporarily remove the dollars pegged to gold. And of course, famously, the dollar has lost most of its value to gold since then. Mm. And, you know, they're never going to put that peg back. They can't. <laughs> now, yeah, gold's trading at like, what, almost $2,000 now. <laughs> so that was just similar to what the Roman Empire was doing with clipping the coins. And so when this inflation happens, it's, I mean, essentially, it's stealing value from people that have worked and tried to save it in that currency. And I think this is why, you know, I think there are, you know, a lot of Christians that are, think that there is an ethical aspect to this and interested in Bitcoin potentially as a solution outside of kind of like the central banks, you know, tyranny and continued theft of the value of our wages. So what do you think the time horizon is for this to become a little more stable, for Bitcoin to become a little more stable and the fiat currencies to become even less trusted? I mean, it still seems that like it's not quite flipped. I think a lot of people started to realize that inflation, you know, I mean, our generation, I'm pretty sure you're my age or younger, we don't remember the 70s, right? Because we weren't there. Mm-hmm. And so I mean, we can kind of see, you know, looking over a long period of life that like, hey, there's been steady inflation. I used to pay a quarter for a pack of gum when I was a kid. Now it's, you know, 75 cents or a dollar or whatever. And we can see that. But now it's all of a sudden, wow, last year I was paying $9 less for a pack of chicken at Costco, right? Right. And you take notice of those, you know, dramatic things. And so people are kind of, well, what the heck is going on? And we have a chance to sort of say, yeah, so there's this new thing that everybody's really into right now that we can possibly switch to. But like, that could be short-lived depending on how the Fed responds and how our money goes. So like, it's not going to be an easy fight. And it may not even be a fight that Bitcoin wins. I'm optimistic and maybe I'm idealistic, but what would you say your time horizon is on that being a lot more... I should say Bitcoin being a lot more stable and a little bit more accepted. A lot more accepted, I should say. Yeah, great question. I mean, I have, you know, thought about this a lot over the past few years. And so I think it's impossible to predict for sure. But yeah, I'd say in general, my conviction is that I do think that Bitcoin will continue to be volatile for, you know, many years. I mean, maybe even another decade. But it'll continue to lurch higher and higher and continue to drop, but the drops will be higher and higher too. And I think it'll become more socially normal for people to own Bitcoin, make it a part of their, even like their retirement portfolios. I think more and more businesses, even like huge corporations, and I think even like banks and churches and you know, nonprofit organizations will start to hold Bitcoin too. And then I think we may even, you know, 
famously, we had El Salvador, you know, a, a tiny poor country, be the first nation to adopt Bitcoin as legal tender. And I think it makes sense for other, you know, initially small countries, but then maybe other, you know, medium or big countries will do it too. I, yeah. So I think it'll be like gradual, but I think, you know, it'll just become more and more normal for it to be integrated with just about every financial service. And yeah, so I think it'll be interesting with churches because, you know, so I, I tithe to my church and I'm trusting them to steward that money well for our church and for charity to support missionaries overseas to, you know, send to other efforts to expand the gospel and to help, you know, build stronger churches, you know, Mm -hmm, elsewhere. And so it's like, as I'm trusting my church to steward that well, I'm not expecting them to make like a risky investment with it to try to grow it. You know, it's like, I just want them to steward it and then allocate it to these other wise investments to grow the kingdom of God. So, you know, it's like, okay, well, well, so where does Bitcoin play with that? So I, I have heard of two churches that already do hold Bitcoin in their treasury. Both are small churches. And so I think it will likely be just a small number of small churches at first. And then as Bitcoin becomes more normal throughout this decade, more and more churches will maybe initially just allow people to tithe in Bitcoin if they want, and then maybe convert it all to dollars, or then maybe they'll keep it in Bitcoin if they tithe that way. And then Eventually, I think it'll be more normal because I think Bitcoin will, more and more people will think of it as a hedge against inflation if it continues to be bad. And then the other aspect too about Bitcoin that's really special is its censorship resistance. So since it is decentralized, then people can't freeze your funds like you can with a bank and they can't like seize your assets like they can with a bank or other financial assets. So one cool thing, I, I actually had a friend who was involved with a Christian ministry in Afghanistan. So then, you know, when the U.S. pulled out and there was a little bit of chaos in different parts of the country, he went to a nearby country, but he was actually working with some Afghan Christians in central Afghanistan that he wanted to help. And so I sent him some Bitcoin and he sent it to this Afghan Christian that then was able to trade it in Afghanistan for food and clothing. And so that was like a cool experience for me to be involved with like a real world experience of seeing how Bitcoin censorship resistance plays out during a time when Western unions were temporarily closed, you know? So I couldn't have sent dollars there, definitely couldn't have sent gold there, but I could send Bitcoin there. Do you use that as a story to help Christians understand some of the importance of these technologies to advance the kingdom? Yeah, that one in particular, I remember when I shared on Facebook, I had several people like it that had never liked any of my other Bitcoin posts. So so I think <laughs> because I, I think for a lot of them, they still care about, like, say, a Christian in Afghanistan that they want to be able to help. And yeah, so, right. But, you know, it'll be interesting because, you know, like in a lot of third world countries, I mean, even the banking systems there are just so corrupt that you can't like build much of a, you know, you can't have a very large church treasury in a bank account because it could just be stolen at any time, you know? So, and then even, you know, for a lot of these, you know, missionaries too, a lot of them are, are involved with starting businesses overseas. So I think 
you know, it'll be interesting to see a lot of these businesses maybe denominate part or all of their treasury in Bitcoin just so that they don't have to deal with the corrupt banks and cartels. And, you know, it'll, mm-hmm. it'll make things a lot more secure and reduce risk. Yeah. Well, I think I'm optimistic on that front. And I think it's also a good in on people getting to trust the tech. You know, as you said, trust the code. The technology itself needs to be trusted. And then there are sort of, those are wins in the argument. And thankfully, they're, you know, heavily emotional wins. And I realize we can't rely on emotion for every argument, but that really does help win people's hearts to do things. Yeah. So I want to ask, do you do any writing online that you'd want to share with our audience so that they can check out some of the other things that you put out? Yeah. So thanks for asking. I plan to. So I actually now, I do actually have a little website set up. I have not released any blog posts yet. I mm-hmm. plan to this fall. So ah, okay. the website is lewisb.me. So L-E-W-I-S-B dot M-E. And right now it's kind of an empty website. But yeah, I'm hoping to start releasing some more regular blog posts there, maybe some YouTube videos too. So yeah. So people can, you know, subscribe there. I haven't released anything yet, but I guess that's one spot. So cool. Well, hey man, I appreciate you joining me to talk about this. I think it's a really important topic as we both have talked about through this. Is there anything else you'd like to say before we wrap up? Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, one of the things that Jesus taught was so everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, he's like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And then he compares that to the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I don't want to make that seem as if it's primarily about Bitcoin. I think, you know, it's primarily about following the words of Jesus. Like, I think his teaching really does remain relevant to us today, too. But I think part of that, too, is I still do think it does apply to Bitcoin. I think, you know, we know that the Lord detests dishonest scales. And so I think trying to build our society on dishonest scales on ever inflating fiat money is like building a house on sinking sand. It's building our economy on sinking fiat. And so I think trying to have more sound money where we can actually save and think long term, it'll improve trust in society. It'll reduce corruption. It'll reduce the spending we do on wars. And Mm. as far as I can tell, I think Bitcoin is the best technology for us to do that with. It's still an you know emerging asset. It's still under adoption. It's still, you know, we're still learning the best ways to integrate it into services. But I think as it matures, based on all I know, I think it'll prove to be trustworthy and maybe a firmer foundation to try to build our economy on. Yeah, well, I think that's well said. And I'm going to insert the obligatory. This is not a financial advice podcast. We are not advising you to buy or hold Bitcoin, but we are giving you our opinions about it. And so we are not going to give you investment advice. So yeah, thanks. Unfortunately, I have to sort of insert that for both of us because it's like, um, okay, you you never know who might come up with this. Yep. I also just want to make it clear. Yeah, I'm just sharing my personal opinions. It's not related at all to any of the organizations that I'm connected to. So yeah. Yeah, sure. Well, thank you for joining me, man. Hey, thanks a lot, Doug. I really appreciate the invitation to come on. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. 
If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.